Hello, friends and neighbors. This is David Smith of Illinois Family Action with a special edition for our Spotlight Podcast. I recently gave the Father's Day sermon at my church, and since we captured the audio, I thought we could post it as a special edition for those who may be interested. In this timely and urgent message, I give a quick summary of our declining cultural condition and urge serious Christians to redeem the time because the days are evil. Specifically, I urged fathers and grandfathers to intentionally and diligently equip our children and grandchildren to know God's Word. Those equipped with a solid biblical worldview will be better able to recognize most, if not all, the snares laid out for us by our adversary. In other words, the truth will set us free and keep us from becoming captive. So, Without further delay, here is the message God laid on my heart. Well, the title verse for today's message is found in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. This is a dying King David's challenge to his son Solomon. And we'll read it together. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3 says... Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning uh, on this Father's Day. Uh, Lord, your word offers an infinity of lessons for us. We can keep drawing out new and wonderful things to learn from your word, and we praise you for that. Thank you that we can call you Abba, Father, and that you are long-suffering, patient, loving to us, kind, uh, and you just desire to bless us. But you have standards, and you have a specific call for each of our lives. Lord, I pray that this morning, this message that you laid on my heart uh, would plant seeds, would convict hearts, but overall, I pray it would be a source of encouragement to everyone here that hears it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us that it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, we read that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And in Proverbs 28, verse 20, we read that a faithful man will abound with blessings. The Lord has laid on my heart a strong conviction that I'd like to share with you on this Father's Day morning. It's a message pertinent to us all, but it's primarily directed to fathers and grandfathers. And we actually have a couple grandfathers here. Before we get to the meat of the message, I'd like to set the background. As you may know, the Illinois General Assembly meets January through the end of May for their regular legislative session every year. And every year, we see a flurry of activity during the month of May, 
as lawmakers scramble to pass the bills they've sponsored before they adjourn on May 31st. The last two weeks are the most dangerous period of time as lawmakers make backroom deals and offer new amendments to sway votes. This year was without question the most horrific we've seen for pro-family interests. Virtually every wicked proposal introduced by lawmakers passed. The legislative accomplishments of the godless were made possible thanks in part to supermajorities of Democrats in both chambers and a new aggressive billionaire, progressive, or should I say regressive, governor. And I also say in part because the Christian community remains largely asleep, apathetic, and uninformed when it comes to matters of politics, public policy, and the cultural mandate in general. We saw new policies approved this, sec this session that will further institutionalize bloodshed, addictions, indoctrination, greed, and corruption, and all of it is built on lies. We saw an expansion of abortion in Illinois. This new law creates a fundamental right to an abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy. We saw a state mandate for public schools to teach LGBT history from kindergarten through 12th grade to further normalize sexual immorality to young, impressionable students. We saw legalization of recreational marijuana Illinois has now given its official approval to this dangerous intoxicant. As perceived risks go down, the increase in use will spike. And the rate of intoxicated drivers, rates of mental illness and brain damage will follow. We saw a huge expansion of gambling in this state, including a casino in the city of Chicago where the poorest of the poor will be able to chase an elusive pot of gold via public transportation. And we have a new option for your driver's license. Yep, next year you will be able to pick from male, female, and other for gender. In the days and weeks since they adjourned, I have had time to reflect on our state of affairs. Lamenting to, all, to, to God Almighty, I wondered aloud on more than one occasion why? After all, in addition to our grassroots activism and lobbying efforts, we were praying fervently and inviting Christians throughout the state to join us in specific days of prayer and fasting. Hundreds, if not thousands of believers were making appeals to heaven. So why didn't God intervene? Well, in this situation, facing overwhelming odds, it would be obvious if he came to our aid. He would certainly get the glory and honor if he chose to, 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 to intervene. Because it was certainly out of our control. It's an impossible situation that could only be tackled by the God of impossible situations. My question, why, was sincere. I believe with all my heart that the policies I just enumerated are wicked policies that will have devastating consequences for many of our neighbors. God's word certainly has something to say about these things. And if we believe that righteousness exalts a nation, then the contrary is true as well. Unrighteousness degrades a nation. 
Well, I came to realize that God didn't answer our prayers the way we wanted them answered because his ways are not our ways. And his purposes are well beyond our comprehension. Moreover, I came to understand that we're under judgment as a state. We are being chastised because we have not only forgotten his precepts, but we've rejected them outright. Romans 1 warns us that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32, we're warned, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do, the, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthies, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. In Romans 2, 12, I'm sorry, Romans 2, verse 2, it says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So yes, if we're honest, we must admit that our culture practices these things, and the consequences is judgment. On the flip side, the church is doing a terrible job teaching the nations to observe the commands of Christ. And our silence and inaction could very well be seen by God as passive approval of those who practice them. Of course, these are merely the trees of a rotting forest. If we take a step back, we can see the bigger picture. And I'll start with abortion. In 1996, Bill Clinton coined the term safe, legal, and rare to describe the Democrat policy on abortion. Today, we have Hollywood celebrities threatening to boycott states like Georgia in response to their abortion restriction laws. We have seen Twitter campaigns called hashtag shout your abortion in which women celebrate their abortions in an effort to eradicate shame and guilt. In her new book, Sophie Lewis says that abortion is, quote, a form of killing that we need to be able to defend, end quote. She calls it, quote, acceptable violence, end quote. During the Illinois House debate on our extreme abortion expansion, State Representative Maurice West from Rockford spoke in favor of the bill on the House floor, identifying himself as, quote, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote, and pontificated on the so-called separation of church and state, he said it was, quote, a biblical decree and a constitutional order, end quote. He called the abortion restrictions passed in Ohio, Georgia, Kentucky, and other states policies that, quote, put chains on women, end quote, liking it to slavery. The mental gymnastics that some of these lawmakers go through <laughs> hurt my brain. 
The contortions they perform and the lies they've purchased and then regurgitate is beyond frustrating. Like the Republican lawmaker who told me that, Dave, you can't legislate morality. Well, how about mass shootings? That's another problem. Did you know that every decade before the 1970s had fewer than 10 mass public shootings? In the 1950s, for example, there was one mass shooting and then a steep rise began. In the 1960s, there were six mass shootings. In the 1970s, the number rose to 13. In the 1980s, the number increased two and a half times to 32. And it rose again in the 1990s to 42. As for this century, the New York Times reported in 2014 that according to the FBI, quote, mass shootings have risen dramatically in the past half dozen years, end quote. And then we have identity problems, right? While Illinois has added the other gender option for driver's licenses, liberal Massachusetts state legislature shelved a bill to add an X as an alternative to F and M because there were now demands that there be no less than 29 additional gender options. Drag queen story hour in our public libraries is now a trend, even in the Bible belts. These events are targeted preschoolers and feature men dressed in flamboyant, vaguely feminine costumes reading to children, young children, preschoolers. Their goal is to further normalize deviant ideas and behaviors. And locally, over the past two weeks, I've tuned in to ABC Channel 7 News just to get the weather report, and I've been subjected to Gay Pride Month public service announcements from the station. Driving on an expressway the other day, I saw another Gay Pride Month acknowledgement on and from a digital billboard. And how about addictions? As if 88,000 alcohol-related deaths a year in America isn't enough, we are seeing more than 47,000 drug overdose deaths a year, 60% of which are from opioids. These numbers are on the increase nationwide, and adding high-potency marijuana to the mix is only going to exasperate things. By the way, it was reported the other day that legal marijuana, the, the legal marijuana industry, is projected to exceed the NFL in total revenue by 2020. That's next year. That's only a few months away. How about suicide? Last year, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention re released a report saying that 47,000 Americans took their own lives in 2017. That's an increase of 2,000 over 2016. And then we have a plummet in birth rates. The fertility rate in the United States has been falling for years, dipping so low that the nation's population would be declining without immigration. That's according to a January report from the CDC. This marks the seventh straight year that fertility has dropped. Demographers put replacement rate at 2.1. Our nation is now at one, below 1.8. And then we certainly have a generational shift going on in this nation. Generation Z and those behind them are increasingly secular. In fact, a survey conducted by the Pew Research Center's Forum on Religion and Public Life 
found the number of Americans who identify with no particular religion is increasing. This group has been given the label nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Sadly, the great majority of them support legal abortion and same-sex mirage. In his daily briefing podcast, Dr. Albert Moeller noted this about this trend. He said this, This is going to represent a huge challenge for Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, evangelical Christians, and our churches looking into the future. There's no denying that that challenge, but there's also no way that Christians can surrender in advance and call that faithfulness. We also have human trafficking. I don't know if you know this, but slavery is alive and well in the land of the free. Without human traffic, with human trafficking now a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide and cases increasing in the United States, several sources claim that the trafficking of women and children is the world's fastest growing crime with an estimated 24.9 million people trapped in forced labor. One more. Church attendance rates. It has edged down in recent years. Gallup's latest yearly update from its daily tracking survey shows that in 2017, 38% of adults said that they attended religious services weekly or almost every week. When Gallup began asking this question in 2008, that figure was 42%. Now, this is just one depressing snapshot of the culture in which we live. I know it's not pretty. And it could become a source of anxiety if we were to drive, uh, dwell on the negativity of it all. But as serious Christ followers... We are not called to be anxious. We're told not to be anxious, actually. But we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Philippians 4.8 tells us that we are called to meditate on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And as serious Christ followers, we're told in Galatians 6, 9, not to lose heart in doing good. Another verse that tells us something similar is found in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, which says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, praise God, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Thank you, Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore the culture around us, however. I fully understand the desire to just bunker down somewhere with my family, away from the craziness and godlessness of this day. It has its appeal at multiple points throughout the year. Yet we know Jesus intentionally sent his disciples into the world, praying to the Father to keep them from the evil one, saying, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So if Jesus was not of the world, and he wasn't, but the Father sent him 
into the world, we need to understand that God is fully aware of the time and place he has placed us, our children and grandchildren. We need to be reminded that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God knows. He created us and prepared for us good works to walk in beforehand and for this particular time in history. So, we are to be in the world, but not of the world, as the saying goes. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. In John chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we're instructed, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And in Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So instead, we're to be like the men of Issachar. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us much about these men, but you find it in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, which tells us, Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. So note that. They understood the times and knew how to respond. Which brings me to the impetus for today's message. How do we respond to the cultural darkness of this perverse generation. Brothers and sisters, fathers and grandfathers, I'm convinced and cannot stress enough the importance and primacy of leading our families in biblical worldview training. Equipping ourselves, our children, our grandchildren becomes increasingly important with each passing day. The schemes, of the schemes and the snares of the devil are multiplying quickly, and hostilities to the things of God are increasing on a rapid pace. You've undoubtedly heard that Christians are called to be faithful, not successful. This is a truth we need to buy and cling to. Dr. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, The Church in Babylon, which I highly recommend, says that, quote, Faithfulness to our calling should be our overriding passion, end quote. He points out that the God who calls is the God who provides all the gifts and strength we need to face the opposition of our culture. In other words, God equips us and wants to use us to accomplish the work that he has be prepared beforehand for us. Now, part of this high calling is found in Philippians 2.15 which says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Emphasis added. 
This includes being faithful in our duty as father and as grandfather, to build strong families that will stand the test of time and cultural hostility. In his book, Dr. Lutzer asks and answers the following question. Question, how can you raise children in a pagan environment? Answer, in Judaism, there were strong fathers who took responsibility for the home. The father led his family in the Passover rituals. Fathers were charged with teaching children the word of God. And God knew with, that with strong fathers grounded in the word of God, these families could survive paganism. It's the Deuteronomy 6 model of passing on our faith. You probably know it well, but I want to review it one more time. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, they're supposed to be in front of you all the time. But far too many Christians and Christian families have neglected to intentionally make this a priority. Now, many of us come from Christian families with parents that just took it for granted that were growing up in a good home, went to church regularly, said grace before, well, at least most of the meals, had fairly good manners, knew the standards of right and wrong, and were taught how to work hard. But that falls woefully short of God's prescription here. There's a short video clip I want to share with you that I believe illustrates this point for us. It's taken from a recent speech given by Abby Johnson, of whom you are probably all familiar with now, right? Hopefully. She was speaking at the annual Florida Family Policy Council's banquet, telling her story. And here it is. But uh, I, I was raised in church. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. I uh, remember my parents saying that we were pro-life. I remember my parents saying that we were against abortion. In fact, I remember in high school saying that, uh, that we were a pro-life family, that we were against abortion, but we did not sit around the dinner table and talk about abortion issues. We did not talk about what it was to be pro-life or pro-choice. I think most of you in this room can probably understand uh, where I'm coming from there. We just, it just wasn't something that was really discussed. It wasn't in the media very much during that time. And I think my parents just believed that, you know, they had taught me God's plan for marriage. And as long as I followed that plan, then abortion would never be something that was on the table. I tell people, we were a family who said we were pro-life, but we were not a person who actually lived like we were pro-life. You heard it right from her, directly from her. She said this, We did not sit around the dinner table and talk about abortion issues. We did not talk about what it was to be pro-life or pro-choice. It just wasn't something that was really discussed. 
It doesn't sound like they followed. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Does it? Abby's father did not diligently teach her about what the word of God has to say about the sanctity of life or about his purpose and place for intimacy. You heard her admit, I think that my parents just believe that they taught me God's plan for marriage, and as long as I followed that plan, then abortion would never be something that was on the table. At the end of the clip, you hear her say, I tell people that we were a family who said they were pro-life, but we were not a person who actually lived like we were pro-life. It's so sad. Hosea 4.6, the Lord laments, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. In Abby's case, at least two lives were literally destroyed through abortion. A partial result of the failure to keep God's statutes and commandments. Ultimately, it was Abby's choice. But praise God, Abby had a change of heart and now reveres God and his crown jewel of creation. She and her husband are the parents of eight children today. This is instructive because it highlights why it is so vitally important that we persistently teach our children God's standards for all of life at every opportunity that we have. Biblical worldview training will help us and our children think through the issues of the day and help us avoid the lies and the snares that could become strongholds. Last week, Pastor Joe Denner gave us a challenge from the life of King David. I want to turn now and take a quick look at the tale of Solomon's life. As we do, as we will see, his failure to obey God is a lesson for us on what not to do. Moreover, we can learn how to bless our, and equip our children. In the book of 1 Kings, we learn that King Solomon was allowed to establish Israel's borders making it the largest and most peaceful nation it had ever been and has ever been since. He accumulated wealth beyond any other king in Israel's history. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14 tells us that he received a tribute of 25 tons of gold every year from the nations around him. In addition, he was honored in ways that his father David never was. God spoke directly to him, not through a prophet as he did with David. And God permitted Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem, something David deeply had desired to do, but was not allowed to because of the wars he had fought. And of course, Solomon was one of the wisest men who ever lived. We're told that he wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. In 1 Kings 4, verse 32 to 34, we're told that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedars that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So the question is naturally is, why? <laughs> how, could, how could someone so smart act so foolishly? How could a man who was so blessed by God end up doing what he did? 
Why would this man who had enjoyed such a close relationship with God end up following Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites? How could he build a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites? He even burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Why would Solomon do these things? Well, we know the consequences. 1 Kings 11, verse 9 says, Now the Lord was very angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. His heart had turned away from God. What had caused Solomon's heart to turn away? Well, I have two suggestions. First, he had developed a kind of arrogance. If we look at verses 1 and 2 earlier in this chapter, we're told, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabites, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. So if God had commanded his people not to marry women from these nations, why on earth would Solomon marry them? God had warned his people that if they married these women, their foreign wives would turn their hearts to worship other gods. So why would Solomon marry them? Because he could. He was, he was the king. Who was going to stop him? And besides, he was too strong to be brought down by their influence. He was too deep in his faith, too special and important to be drawn away by their paganism. Maybe we should take a lesson from this. When we pray for wisdom, and we should... Maybe we should also ask God for an equal or greater portion of humility to go with it. But I digress. Apparently, Solomon was arrogant enough to believe that the commands of God applied only to other people, not to him. Now, you'll listen to boys and girls being told that they shouldn't marry non-Christians, but they'll do it anyway. The reason? I know God's word tells me I shouldn't, but I believe He'll change for me. They reason that their faith is too strong to be watered down. Their love for God is too profound to be damaged. And sometimes they might succeed. But most of the time, they end up having the man or woman of their dreams turn their hearts away from Jesus. That's arrogance. The belief that God's rules apply to someone else, not to them. That's what happened to Solomon. And that leads into the second reason, and more basic reason, Solomon's heart turned from God. Solomon spent his time with the wrong people. God said, don't have fellowship with these people. They'll ruin your faith. They'll undermine your love for God. They'll make you doubt God's word. Interestingly, uh, David, Solomon's father, wrote this in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seats of scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. 
He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruits in season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. 1 Corinthians 15.33 also teaches us, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. There are certain people you don't want to have fellowship with if you want to have a heart entirely devoted to God and his statutes. This extends to other corrupting influences in our culture. The amount of time we spend with worldly sources, including and especially social media. Last week, I listened to an interview with the author of a scientific paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. The report highlights something called CIMI, or Search Engine Manipulation Effect. These online manipulation effects are so powerful that if, in, if they're in the hands of people who have a pol certain political leaning, they can shift upwards of 15 million votes in the presidential election without anyone knowing that they're being manipulated. The author specifically identified Google and Facebook as being the two most powerful online companies. I have two comments on this. First, we'd be naive to think that these online tools are not being used by apostles of wickedness to advance their anti-biblical views. Secondly, that's why it is vital that we are thoroughly steeped in God's word. That we've intentionally and diligently equipped our children and grandchildren to know the word of God. Those equipped with a solid biblical worldview will be better able to recognize most, if not all, the snares laid out for us. In other words, the truth will set us free and keep us free from becoming captive. Unfortunately, Solomon wasn't wise enough to realize that. And so God told Solomon, because you have turned your back on me, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to, some, to one of your subordinates. Now, the kingdom was supposed to go to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. That was the right of succession. But Solomon robbed his son of a great inheritance because he turned his back on God. Nevertheless, says God, nevertheless, yep, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon sinned. Solomon had deliberately disobeyed God and turned his back on God. And yet, God withheld his hand of punishment during Solomon's lifetime. And even Solomon's son, Rehoboam, would not lose everything. How come? Why wasn't the entire kingdom ripped away from Solomon and his family? Because of David. One of the most overlooked blessings in scriptures is the blessing of the umbrella effect of faith. In Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, God gives us this warning with a promise of this blessing. You shall not worship idols or serve them. For I, the Lord God, your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Most often people focus only on the curse that's in this third commandment. God will punish the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. However, what this third commandment assures us of is that curse can be short-circuited. Men and women who have lived lives that have angered God can change the course of their children's history simply by turning their hearts back to God. We're told that God desires to show love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. David understood this. That's why he, when he, he wrote in Psalm 103. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. In other words, when we fear God, when we walk in his ways, when we keep his statutes, commandments, ordinances, and testimonies, our faithfulness can create an umbrella of protection over children that will bless them until the day they die. David had a personal relationship with God. He loved God, feared God, and built his life around God. Now, <laughs> we know that David stumbled in his faith. David committed grievous sins, committing adultery and murder. But unlike Solomon, David repented and changed his life. He even wrote Psalm 51 to publicly repent. says this, part of it at least. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In verse 10, David asks God for a clean heart and steadfast spirit. And in verses 12 and 13, he publicly appeals to God, saying, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. As far as David was concerned, there was no other relationship as critical as his relationship with God. And once he had realized he had jeopardized that relationship, he struggled to once again get right with God. When he fell on his face in sin, he got back up, repented, and was restored. Praise God for this example. By contrast, Scripture tells us that Solomon's heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. David's relationship with God protected his son and his grandson, even when Solomon made terrible and disastrous decisions. So, the message this morning is, admittedly, a mixed bag of bad news, good news, but a specific call to faithfulness, especially for fathers and grandfathers.
We must take our relationship with God seriously. Knowing him and his will has got to be the absolute top priority in our lives. Not only should we be steeped in God's word, but we need to be diligently impressing the word on the hearts of our children and grandchildren, teaching them to keep all his statutes and his commandments and how they apply to the, the situations we face in the world and the culture today. When we focus our lives on God and walk in his ways, we will be creating an inheritance of protection for our children and our grandchildren. We can provide for them an umbrella of faith as a protection over their lives. They may make foolish decisions and pay a terrible price if they choose to disobey God. But our faithfulness can help shelter them from the worst effects of their foolishness. So, despite the increasingly secular culture, we have a duty to be faithful, to walk in his ways, to keep his statues, statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies. In fact, the growing godless we observe, observe around us can only give us a heightened sense of urgency. And knowing how our obedience or disobedience can overflow into our children's life should also give us a sense of seriousness. Brothers and sisters, fathers and grandfathers, I need to hear this message as much as any other father. We need to be reminded often of the primacy of keeping the charge of the Lord our God. As 1 Corinthians 2.3, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 2.3 tells us. It's the challenge of a lifetime. Now, the sentence immediately preceding this verse, we find King David, the Goliath slayer's challenge to Solomon. It's a challenge presented to us all on this Father's Day. The New King James Version translates it this way. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. There's a challenge, man. There's a challenge.